I often uh, remind American audiences and congregations when I'm in the United States that the Good Friday Agreement uh, was probably one of the most successful pieces of American foreign policy in the last 50 years. It brought to an end, as many of you know, a 30-year internal bloody sectarian war in the northern part of the island of Ireland. And yet even though we have had 25 years of relative peace, as a space we're still struggling with the legacy of hundreds of years of toxic politics and toxic religion. The Irish literary writer James Joyce once said, history is a nightmare from which I'm trying to recover. And I would suggest that many of our spaces, yours as much of mine, uh, carries deep down inside it, if not always on the surface, the legacy of your history and my history. Today, as we all know, we live in a 140-character world. Uh, if we can get it into a tweet, or perhaps a billboard as we drive down I-75, or even a 15-second advertisement. We gladly reduce the world's wisdom to something pithy and possibly even trite. But maybe good things still come in small packages. Maybe the dilemma of bite-sized texts is not new to our Twitter age. Interestingly, in another generation in the Babylonian Talmud, uh, the rabbis posed a similar question. Is there any way we can distill the essentials of Judaism into, say, 140 characters? And in the psalm that we read there, Psalm 85, and the hymn we just sang, those words of justice, uh, peace, Righteousness are continually there. And really that tweet that those rabbis wrestle with is in Micah. He has told you, O mortal, what is good? What does the Lord require of you? Do justice, love mercy, walk humbly with your God. It's a short verse. But there's a balance, I think, between the structures of sacred obligation, it has been told you, and the freedoms are of audacious inquiry God requires from you. As one Jewish theologian said, the shallowness of our moral comprehension, the incapacity to sense the depth of misery caused by our own failures, is a simple fact of fallen humanity which no explanation can justify or hide. My wife, who's not with me this morning, uh, Joyce, after an intense week at Emory University, I said, just, just rest today. We've another uh, busy week ahead. But I remember watching the movie Belfast, out of curiosity, who has seen that movie Belfast, okay, there's a few, okay, so that's on your to-do list then for the next week for some of you that haven't seen it. But I remember at the end of it, uh, Joyce and I turning to one another because there was a, a little inscription at the end of it. 
It said this, to those who stared, to those who left, and to those who died. Uh, my family stared during that internal civil war. Uh, uh, Joyce's family, my wife's family, went to England and eventually returned, and I knew many people that died. And as someone staying in that space and living in that space and living through a conflict for almost half my life, I was weary of toxic politics and toxic religion. And I often thought the church during the conflict, and maybe you're the same in your conflicted political space at the moment, I think they did a pretty good job pastorally, burying the dead of the conflict, giving therapy, bringing about listening circles to allow people to hear their pain. But at times they missed the mark prophetically. There's a tension, isn't there, between that uh, pastoral and that prophetic in all our churches. When do we spill out of this closeted space and engage with outside society? Iskel said the prophet is a person who feels fiercely. God has thrust the burden on their soul, and they are bowed and stunned at humanity's fierce greed, Prophecy is the voice God has lent to the silent agony. God is raging in the prophet's words. And really, Micah, in those few short words, is trying to do that. Most of us are very aware of the Nike slogan, just do it. So this is a just do sermon, not dissimilar to Nike. Only it's more important than sportswear, trust me. So I want to say to you as a church, I want you just do justice. Because the writer begins there with a command. God requires this of you. It's not a suggestion, perhaps, like your fishing hobby or your sports. Maybe when you have a spur moment, I would like you, St. Luke's, to do justice. Our nation still struggles with legacy. Every 25 or 30 years for 400 years with some form of rebellion driven by religion, driven by politics, or sometimes a toxic mix. And I often look at your space and my space and what I see like a twin-track approach. It's interesting if you read history and read theology how racism and sectarianism were actually twin evils of the church and interestingly both elaborately propped up by very sophisticated theological systems. Flip your eyes over to Ireland and the rise of religious sectarianism and the rise of the legacy of slavery and racism in your space. They weren't just propped up by efficient uh, governmental departments they were propped up by the church. And historically, in my space, and you can work out your space, faith communities were silent or complicit or even outright apologists 
for these systems. Alexandra Solzhenitsyn said, the line separating good and evil passes not through states, nor between classes, nor between political parties either, but right through every human heart and through all human hearts. I'm no longer in parish ministry. I served in the inner city of Belfast for almost 30 years. So I know the pain and the chaos and the complexity of politics and religious sectarianism. And that's why this whole concept of just do mercy is so, so important for the church. I spent my time now in the United States, the island of Ireland, and in the Middle East, working with Palestinians and Israelis. I visited the museum, as I guess a number of you folk in this church today have, Yad Vashem taken from Isaiah, and I will give them an everlasting name, Yad Vashem. What happened in the Shoah or the Holocaust, that memory, that trauma, should last forever. And I have a friend, Eva Alouz, who's the chair of the sociology department at the Hebrew University, and has written a number of articles trying to understand that psychology of Israel, psychology of the Jews. And as is rightly said, I mean, trauma is a central concept in the Holocaust. In the 50s and in the 60s, evidence began emerging, albeit slowly, that the Holocaust was not limited to the survivors themselves, but was passed on to the next generation and those raised in the shadow of the Holocaust. So it's very, very possible, theologically, sociologically, philosophically, psychologically, growing up in the shadow of the Holocaust and seeing this transgenerational transmission of trauma in many aspects of second and third and fourth generation children's lives. And likewise, the same application applies to those who were colonized and enslaved, that it affects future generations. This kind of silly throwaway line I hear from people, can't they just get over it? Could you imagine me saying to a group of victims in our recent conflict, whom I work with regularly, hey guys, just get over it. Be pretty bad practice, both theologically and psychologically. Because the effects of that still linger in this nation. I mean, a study recently in the United States found that older black people born during the civil rights struggles and Jim Crow, Alabama, Arkansas, Georgia, Kentucky, Louisiana, Mississippi, North Carolina, South Carolina, and Tennessee, even if they didn't live there any longer, they were out of those spaces, were more prone to mental diseases such as dementia and Alzheimer's than the rest of the population. 
In my recent conflict, one in five ex-prisoners are drinking themselves to death. More people have committed suicide in the north of Ireland than died in the conflict. Suicides that are related to the lingering effects of that bloody sectarian war. We have the highest dosage of antidepressants prescribed in Western Europe and one of the highest in the world. Oh, just get over it. And the irony is for all of us is that buried sin cannot be repented of. If you bury sin, as we all have this tendency to do in our legacies, you can't repent of buried sin. But in reality, let me also underline this, while repentance, metanoia, is important, repentance ain't enough. I've often been through Jericho, as I guess a number of you have. Uh, that Zacchaeus tree doesn't exist any longer, but there's a kind of sort of fake news Zacchaeus tree, as you know, as you enter Jericho, that your guide faithfully points out to you. Now, this is not the Zacchaeus tree, but this tree is probably 1,200 years old, and it is not dissimilar to the tree that Zacchaeus probably popped down from to encounter Jesus. It sounds good for tourists, I guess. Okay. But think of Zacchaeus' resume, his CV. He's a tax collector in Jericho. He's also a collaborator with the occupying Roman authorities. He adds his own extortionary fees, plunders the wealth of his neighbors, and he enriches himself. Of course, Jesus shocks all the nice, religious, boring people of the day by going to the home of Zacchaeus. And then Zacchaeus comes out with that outlandish statement. Look, Lord, here and now, not in 10 years' time, but today, today, I will give half of my possessions to the poor. If I've cheated anybody out of anything, I'll give four times back the amount. Now, you and I know in this room today that Zacchaeus didn't personally design the Roman taxation system. He didn't write it up. He didn't announce it. But he participated in it, and he ultimately really, really profited from it. So Zacchaeus just didn't do the my name is Zacchaeus, and I'm a thug, and I've come to Jesus statement, which we get in many of our churches. He made restitution. What does that look like in your context? It's not for me to tell you. But I know Brand Stevenson said, I don't want to punish America. I want to liberate America. It's a very profound statement. Because we all know many people that are wrong do want to punish. Let them get a dose of their own medicine. We called it in our space tit-for-tat killings. You kill one of us, we kill one of you. But imagine being liberated. It's different, isn't it? Released, changed, transformed. And then the final 
tiny bit of this tweet of another generation is, just do a humble walk with God. There was only one uh, woman, uh, Israeli Prime Minister uh, Golda Meir, uh, who had a very uh, cheeky but interesting caustic sense of humor. And once when someone was in her office, her wonderful throwaway line to them was this, uh, don't be humble, you're not that great. It's a brilliant, <laughs> brilliant one-liner. <laughs> so but yet, we're still called to be humble. But it doesn't do well in our 21st century Western world, does it? I mean, Sachs writing in Moses saying that great hero of the Jewish tradition is, is classed as a very humble person. More humble, the Bible says, than any other person on the earth. But by today's standards, Moses pretty badly advice. No agent, didn't sharpen up his image. He also let slip some calculated indiscretions about conversations he had with God. He should have told us more about those. Why not sell your story, Moses, for a six-figure sum? Television show, give wisdom to those watching millions. Fifteen minutes of fame. What did Moses settle for? The lesser consolation of three thousand years of moral influence. But our culture, we want to make a statement. An article in the New York Times there a couple of years ago observed how humility is not what it used to be. In fact, it's probably now, in the 21st century, actually the exact opposite of what it used to be. Lately, it's pro forma. It's mandatory. Politicians, athletics, celebrities, who are humbled by every honor I've been awarded, every prize I've won, every job I've been offered, every record I have broken, every pound I have lost. A soup opera actress is humbled by the outpouring of love from her fans. Comedians are humbled by big laughs. Yoga practitioners are humbled by achieving difficult poses. Christian volunteers are humbled by their own generosity and holiday spirit at Christmas. None of them sound very humbled at all. In fact, let's be honest, most are pretty exceedingly proud of themselves, hashtagging their humility to advertise their own status, success, sprightliness, generosity, moral superiority. I mean, when did humility get so cocky and vain glorious? Someone wrestled with this 2,000 years ago, and they said this, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. But in humility, consider others better than yourselves. Each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also the interests of nothing. To a person who made themselves nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. Can you imagine what this church would look like? what the city of Atlanta would look like, what the city of Belfast would look like. 
If we made the focus of our lives to do justice, do mercy, and do a humble walk with God. Dorothy Sayers, who dipped in and out of the inkling, C.S. Lewis's little intellectual group there in Oxford, she was never totally in, but was never totally out. And she wrestled, like most of us, with these issues of faith. And one of her brilliant quotations talking of Jesus, she said this. She calls it the disturbing Christ. And I, I often say, and I say this to my uh, clergy colleagues, uh, uh, Bishop Will Willimon uh, was preaching in my church a few years ago before I'm doing the work I'm doing now. And uh, Will Willimon still uh, dean there up in uh, Duke University. I'll hopefully see him in a few weeks' time in North Carolina. But he said to my congregation, Gary is not here to meet your needs. Can I just say that none of my clergy colleagues are here to meet your needs? If you want a rector or a priest or a pastor to meet your needs, can I recommend uh, Oprah Winfrey? He's great. She's great at this kind of stuff. Uh, Jerry Springer would also be brilliant. But it's not a rule to meet your needs, I'm afraid. So if you're coming here on Sunday morning to get your needs met, it's not going to work. Our role is to make you holy and to serve God. There's a profound difference. And that's why Sayer said very categorically, the people who hang Christ to do them justice never accused him of being a bore. On the contrary, they thought him too dynamic to be safe. It's been left for later generations to muffle up that shattering personality and surround him with an atmosphere of tedium. We have very efficiently, she said, purred down the claws of the land of Judah, definitely certified him as meek and mild, recommended him as a fitting household pet for pale curates and pious old ladies. Jesus was not a milk-and-water person. He insulted respectable clergy persons like me by calling us hypocrites. He referred to the ruler of the land, King Heard, as a fox. And as Sarah said, he was emphatically not a dull man in his human lifetime. And if he was God, as Sayer said, there could be nothing dull about God either. But she said this, he had a daily beauty in his life that made us ugly. And the officialdom felt that the more established order of things would be more secure without him. So they did away with God in the name of peace and quietness. So let me ask you as a church, let me ask myself as well, will this church do away with God in the name of peace and quietness? Or will we follow that tweet, do justice, love mercy, walk humbly with your God? It's your choice.